Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and our scripture is from Genesis chapter 41. In your worship folder, uh, we'll have half of the scripture there. I'd encourage you to grab the pew Bibles right in front of you. I'll be reading the whole chapter through verse 57 of chapter 41 in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So as you turn with me there, let me read Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine." It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them 
There will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he said over all the land of Egypt, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said, There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Amen. 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 
It's good to be back. I've noticed all sorts of things have changed. We're only printing half the Bible these days. I've been away for a week, and everyone is wearing bow ties. So it's all, all downhill, but it's good to be back. And we're looking at Genesis 41. Now, it is a long passage, but it's a story, right? And so we're going to look at the story. You will remember that uh, Joseph, at the beginning of the story, Joseph has, uh, is in prison. You will remember that he was thrown there by uh, his master, Potiphar, after false accusation uh, from his uh, master's wife against uh, Joseph. He had been sold into slavery by his own brothers. So this is the, the backstory. Joseph, who had received these extraordinary dreams from God of blessing and usefulness, is languishing in a damp dungeon. Uh, and it must have felt not only terrible, but uh, tantalizingly terrible. Uh, there had been a moment when he had hoped that he would be lifted up out of jail. He had interpreted the dream of the cupbearer to the king, this high official, and he'd made the cupbearer promise that he would remember Joseph when he was put back into his high official place, but the cupbearer to the king had forgotten and so, verse 1, now two whole years had passed. Now, in this story, we come to the dramatic moment when Joseph is all of a sudden, in a great rush, exalted to the second in command over Egypt, the greatest empire up until that moment known to man. Hugely powerful and prosperous position. He becomes the premier of this empire, Egypt. And the interpretive grid, as we seek to not only hear the story but understand what it means, the interpretive grid for it we've seen is this verse a little later in the story, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You remember it says there that uh, you planned it for evil, talking about the deeds of his brothers and what they had done when they sold him into slavery. You planned it for evil, and we wrestled with that evil. We wrestle with how it is that God is good and uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet we live in a world where things are not good. We wrestle with that. We, st we, st we looked evil foot in the face and turned to the cross. And saw, therefore, how God is able to even use evil for good. So we wrestle with that stream, as it were. You planned it for evil. But now, in this passage, we're looking at the other side of the stream. But God planned it for good. And in some ways, that other side of the stream is almost harder to believe. It is almost harder to believe that God has a good plan. It is almost harder to believe that not only with the horrors of this world, but the banal, strange indifferences, the odd circumstances, the unusual, apparently fatalistic events, 
the way that life just seems to be odd, unusual, strange. Why am I here? What am I doing here? How did this get together with this? And yet, this passage is telling us a story in order to encourage you, if you sense that God perhaps has forgotten you. If you look back on your life and you wonder, how is this story going to end up in a good place? This story is for you, to tell you that God has a good plan. Of course, it's Mother's Day today, isn't it? And uh, mothers, of course, know that their role is the easiest job in the whole world. It's uh, deeply challenging. Sometimes you expect more of your children than they achieve. And you wonder, does God have a good plan for all this? And then, of course, there are many people who wish that they were mothers and are not. Does God have a good plan for all that? Well, the same is true whether you're, if you're a businessman or a businesswoman or you, you, for, for work as well as for home. How do we believe? And is it actually the right true thing to believe? That God is, as it were, weaving together all the threads of our lives for a beautiful tapestry. Well, this is what this passage is showing us is the case for those who, like Joseph, are faithful to God. It's deep encouragement that God has a good plan for your life. And therefore, it is a call to align your life with that good plan, with that God of the Bible. The story uh, is, therefore, aiming for that goal And it simply has uh, three movements. Uh, The first is the dream, verses 1 to 8. The second is Joseph's interpretation of the dream, verses 9 to 36. And then finally is Joseph's exaltation, verses 37 to 57. As I say, it's all an encouragement to those who follow God that God has a good plan. Meredith Klein, great scholar, put it like this. The closing of the prison doors was designed by the Lord to be the opening of a door to the palace. Let's see how that is the case. First, the dream, verses 1 to 8. Well, Pharaoh has a most distressing dream. Egypt, you see, was uh, the breadbasket for the world at the time. It was uh, the, um, the place where there was always food and plenty. And so to have any dream that questioned that for the leader of that country would have been hugely distressing. Uh, the Nile, of course going through Egypt, had this pattern of regular flooding. And because of that it allowed a bountiful harvest. Well, he sees uh, cows, and of course cows uh, were not only the standard farm animal, but in Egypt at the time were also associated with one of the Egyptian gods. And so for Pharaoh to see this sort of trauma on, uh, on cows is not only questioning the, the, the farming and the, the bounty and the ancient economy and all that, but it's also inauspicious omen that the cows should suffer. 
What is more, it's a startling dream, isn't it? Uh, There are these seven cows. I love how the uh, translator uh, puts it. They are attractive and plump. I find that quite a funny description. What exactly is an attractive cow? I mean, and plump. It's just a funny word to me, uh, but maybe that's just because I'm British. I don't know. But it was a startling dream. And again, we're so familiar with the story, sometimes we gloss over the sort of strangeness of it. Here you have uh, thin, ugly cows eating fat, sleek, sleek cows, uh, plump, attractive cows. There's a sort of horror movie part to it. Eating them. And uh, he awakes. Whoa, what's going on? I had too much pizza last night, perhaps, he thinks. He goes to sleep, he dreams again. This time the thin ears of corn eat the fat ears of corn. And as verse 8 puts it, the combination means now that Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. It's inauspicious, there are cows, it's about something to do with the economy, perhaps. Uh, Obviously, in the ancient world, dreams were viewed as something that you could utilize to interpret what was going to happen in the future. They were sort of messages from God, that's how they were viewed. And so, Pharaoh's spirit, that is his mind, his mood, his feelings, his thinking, is all disturbed, it's discombobulated, it's troubled, a strange dream, and it disturbed his mind. And he does what uh, the pharaohs at the time would have done. That is, he asks all the magicians and wise men of Egypt for help interpreting the dream, but they cannot. Now note God's providence. No one but God could have put these dreams in Pharaoh's mind. You know, Joseph did not send out resumes to Pharaoh for a job. He's in a prison. But God puts in Pharaoh's mind these dreams. No one but God could have done that. And no one but God could have made it so that the magicians, skilled in interpreting these sort of things, had nothing to say and could not interpret and were mute. I mean, surely they could have come up with some sort of random interpretation for these two dreams, but they have nothing to offer. The heart of the king is in God's hands. And while Joseph languishes in jail, God is moving the pieces on the board into just the right place at just the right time. So take courage. If you feel overlooked or forgotten, you do not know what God is doing behind the scenes for your good that will be revealed at just the right time. Joseph is in jail. He is apparently forgotten, but not forgotten by God. In fact, God, like a master chess player, is about to play checkmate. So first the dream, second the interpretation. Verses 9 to 36. Uh, the chief uh, cupbearer now remembers his sins. So he had done wrong against Pharaoh. That's why he'd been thrown in jail. So he remembers this. 
Um, But he'd also done wrong against Joseph. He had uh, promised that he would tell Pharaoh about Joseph and his particular skills, but he had not done that. And so he remembers his sins. Now, will you then note that it is best that the right time to do the right thing is always now. So you may be sitting there, and perhaps that's why you're here this Mother's uh, uh, Sunday, thinking, I wonder what God is up to, and I've done these things in my past, and I don't know how to make up for them. The right time to do the right thing is always now. It's always now. But then be encouraged also, because this cupbearer who had not done the right thing for a couple of years, though that was wrong for him to have waited that long, nonetheless there was grace and mercy as he told, as it were, the king. You may have had things deep in your past that you have not yet ever really confessed to God. And you wonder whether, because they're so far in the past, whether there is still mercy for you. Well, the right time to do the right thing is always now, but if, if it's something that happened a long time ago, the right time to do the right thing is also now. Well, Joseph is brought uh, to Pharaoh, and everything now happens in a great rush. It has been 13 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. I mean, just think about that. 13 years in slavery. But now, in a great rush, he is grabbed out of prison, he's shaved, new clothes are put on him, and he's hurried into the presence of the king. Uh, By the way, that gives you some sense of the awful situation of this ancient dungeon, that he was in no fit state to even appear before the king. He must be shaved. He needs new clothes. From prison to palace in a matter of minutes. I don't know what your experience has been, but it seems to me that when God moves, He does it. And when God moves and speaks the word, it is so. I sometimes like to joke that God answers by second class post on the morning of departure. It can seem like a long delay. But when God moves, he moves quickly, as he does here. It is so often the case. Well, you also notice how humble is Joseph. Verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So if you have gifts from God, would you ascribe the glory for those gifts to God? not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, Joseph does not have false humility. He does not stand before Pharaoh and says, oh, well, Pharaoh, you've got the wrong guy. I've got nothing to offer. You better talk to someone else. I mean, I'm just... He's not like Uriah Heep, the Charles Dickens character, who's always going around saying, I'm ever so humble, I'm ever so humble, I'm ever so humble, but he's not really. He's extremely arrogant. He's not humble enough to serve, to offer his gifts. Well, Joseph is willing to use his gifts 
but he knows they are gifts. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, Pharaoh recounts the dream to Joseph, and Joseph interprets the dream. The two dreams have the same meaning, seven good years followed by seven uh, bad years. Obviously, this is a particularly extreme kind of um, economic downturn, but such cycles were familiar to the ancient world. These sort of seven-year cycles of famines were known to the ancient world. And I'm mentioning this so you know that what we're dealing with here is real history. As one commentator tells us, there was once a great chieftain of Egypt who recorded a seven-year famine in Egypt, which was so bad that people died of hunger and even ate their own children. So these kind of seven-year cycles of of boom and bust, um, our economies have those kind of cycles, but this sort of agrarian particular cycle was known to the ancient world, though this one was a particularly extreme kind. What uh, would happen was there would be inadequate rainfall in the southern Sudan, that's lower down in Africa, and if that occurred, that would prevent the Nile from flooding And without that, Egyptian agriculture was doomed. So in God's providence, this cycle was going to be used to exalt Joseph and through Joseph save his people. Uh, God is in charge of the economy. If you're a businessman or a businesswoman and you're concerned about your business, could it be the best business decision you have made this week is to come to church this morning. Would you pray about your business, your work? God is in charge of the economy. Well, the interpretation is told, and then verse 33, Joseph proceeds afterwards to give Pharaoh wise advice. It's very practical. Appoint a discerning and wise man, that is a good administrator. Give him overseers under him to manage it. That's put together an appropriate organizational chart. And then the strategy is very simple. Gather food during the good years. You know, when we give someone a warning from God's word, and of course this is a warning to Pharaoh, when we give someone a warning from God's word, we also should follow up with practical counsel as to how to avoid the danger and move towards what is good, as Joseph does here. It's one thing to say to someone, read the Bible, but then we also need to follow up with, um, well, this is how you read the Bible. It's one thing to say to someone, pray, but then we also need to follow up with, well, this is how you pray, as Jesus taught his disciples. Practical advice that puts into action biblical principles is a biblical thing to do. It's very pragmatic in a sense. Appoint a good administrator, get a good organizational chart, have a clear strategy. Well, then we come to the exaltation or Joseph being lifted up, verses 37 to 57. 
uh, Pharaoh sees that uh, Joseph is one who is this wise and discerning man, and he notes that in Joseph, uh, in Joseph is the Spirit of God. Obviously, Pharaoh is a pagan, but somehow or other, he senses that in Joseph there's something supernatural, there's something special, something spiritually special. And uh, this phrase, the Spirit of God, that in him is the Spirit of God, is the same phrase as Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and Genesis 8, verse 1. Pharaoh notices that there is a special spiritual thing about Joseph. And uh, so he exalts him. He lifts him up. He gives him all the signs of high office, riding in his second chariot. Uh, people calling out uh, before Joseph, bow the knee, bow the knee, bow the knee. It's pretty clear that he's an important man. <laughs> he is Pharaoh's second in command. And uh, he gives him a new name. Scholars are unsure what this name means. There's been a lot of debate in the literature over the years. We don't actually have certainty about what the name means. Some translate it actually as Savior of the world. It's possible, but we don't know. Another scholar said it means the man who knows, which is also possible, though ironically enough we don't know whether that is the meaning, the man who knows. Joseph is given a marriage into the aristocracy of Egypt. He marries this sort of priestess. It's an aristocracy thing. It's not a religious thing. He's marrying, this, he's marrying a Kennedy. Uh, his children are named, therefore, afterwards by Joseph to indicate his sense of God's blessing. Uh, the first is uh, Manasseh, and this indicates that he has forgotten the suffering of the past, Manasseh sounding like the Hebrew for to forget, and the second, that uh, he is now fruitful, Ephraim sounding like the Hebrew for fruitful. And then at the end, uh, during the famine years, all the surrounding areas came to Joseph to buy food. Now, as I say, we are looking here at the other side of this providential story of this narrative of Joseph. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, you planned it for evil but God planned it for good. And here we're seeing the good plan moving into place. When I was sharing this with some friends this week, the question that was coming back to me was, well, how do we define what is this good? One way to do it is to take this story to its natural conclusion that there will be a place, a new heaven, a new earth, where there'll be no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, for the old order has passed away and the new has arrived. One day we'll be in a place where we can look back on the tapestry of our lives and all the threads that so confuse us now. How does this part of the story of my life connect to this part of the story. I just don't understand. And one day we'll be in a place where we'll be able to see the plan of the master weaver putting together all those threads for a beautiful tapestry. One day we will be there. 
and we'll be able to say, yes, Lord, it is good, and I glorify you. Then, of course, the question is, is there no good now? What about in this world? Are, are we simply pilgrims passing through this world to the new heaven and the new earth? Or is there any sense of blessing for what it means to follow Jesus now? Well, yeah, there is. But it may not be exactly what we look for. Uh, Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian Christian pastor. He came from a Jewish background. He was uh, tortured for 14 years by the communist regime of Romania from 1948 to 1964. During those 14 years, he had three years in solitary confinement in an underground cell. As I say, he was repeatedly tortured. In 1966, he gave evidence to the U.S. Senate about his treatment for uh, being a Christian gospel preacher. Uh, In 1966, he gave evidence to the U.S. Senate's Internal Security Subcommittee. And as he gave evidence, at one point he stripped to the waist to prove that he had been tortured and revealed 18 deep torture wounds. And he said, if I showed you my whole body, I wonder if you could bear to look at it. Well, he was in jail, and then he was rescued. And Richard Wormbrandt became an international gospel witness of a profound kind whose influence still lasts. Of course, Joseph was in jail, and no doubt he still remembered that he had spent so long away from his homeland, and one of his final wishes was that he would be buried in the promised land. As the book of Hebrews puts it, by faith, that that was God's promise. So he was still looking. But God, who took him through jail and then exalted him to this place, this second in command, the point was not the palace, nor the chariots. The point was that now he was, as one possible translation of his name, the Savior of the world. And it could be that the very things that you find most traumatic, most difficult, are the things that God is precisely weaving into the tapestry of your life, that you might, in your weakness, be exalted as a witness. That you too have been taken out of the pit and restored to a relationship with the King of the whole universe. One hymn writer puts it like this, a sovereign protector I have, unseen, yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He smiles and my comforts abound. His grace as the dew 
shall all around and walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. Now that's, if you're a Christian, that's you. If you've aligned yourself with God's sovereign purpose, that's you. He delights to defend you. Let that be an encouragement for you, you Christians, you mothers, that perhaps, you know, the the children you have are perhaps not the ideal that you had hoped for. But God has a sovereign purpose to bring good out of that, and he delights to defend you. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're here with family, and you've been brought along to celebrate your mother's or your grandmother's uh, special day, let this be a call to you to align your life with the Savior of the world. There is an echo, of course, of Jesus. You picked picked it up at the end of the passage? Because the famine was severe in all the world. One day another Joseph will come who will, as it were, not just be thrown in jail but will be crucified and rise to new life. And he stands this morning ascended on high in glory and from him, from Jesus, you can receive newness of life, protection and the sure certainty that your life is part of a good plan. Let's pray together. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards my footsteps and gives me songs in the night. Oh Lord, we thank you that you do guard our footsteps. You know the end from the beginning, and our lives and all their mysteriousness to us have a clear and beautiful plot line, a plan. Lord, we confess before you that sometimes we do not see it, But we take courage from this story of Joseph, who was a faithful man. Would you help us to be faithful to you, that one day we might see in all its glory the beautiful tapestry of our lives that you are weaving. And so now we sing, we sing to you in praise and faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.